Our scripture reading this morning will be coming from Revelation chapter 1. And we'll be reading the entirety of Revelation chapter 1, which you can find uh, on pages 1406 and 1407 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Hear now as it is read for you this morning in your midst. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all these things that he saw. Indeed, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like, were white, like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so far, the reading of the Lord's word, may he bless it upon our hearts. I draw your uh, attention in particular to verse 17 when John had seen him. I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, 
saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's our sermon text this morning. Do please join me in asking for the Lord's uh, prayer for our time in his word. Eternal and living God, uh, help us to uh, hear your holy word that we would truly understand and that in understanding or that we would believe and in believing that that we would follow you in all faithfulness and obedience and seek your honor and glory in all the things that we do. Lord, uh, silence the things of our minds, Lord, of our, uh, from outside of us. Uh, from, Lord, open our ears and our hearts to receive your word and the wisdom of life in the gospel, Lord, as our comfort and joy. Lord, here as we ask, in the name of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, um, on just several Sundays ago when we had uh, the Easter period and Resurrection Sunday, uh, I was reading the, the typical passages that you would find uh, in the Gospels. Um, and as I was reading through John 20, a detail stuck out at me that I thought was a bit funny because I had uh, just recently list, uh, read Revelation 1 as well. And comparing the two, I just I thought this was a fascinating thing. Uh, now, you, in John 20, you might remember that's where Mary Magdalene goes to visit Jesus' tomb. And she sees the stone rolled back. And she finds the body inside missing. So she goes and she tells Peter and John... Well, Peter and John then go run full speed to go and see for themselves. And John gets to the tomb first. And he stands at its entrance. And he looks in. He sees Jesus' clothes folded up really nice in there, but no body. So what Mary's been saying was true. And he's looking in. That doesn't maybe pique his curiosity. Because he doesn't go inside. And what I thought was funny about this, or just fascinating, was that this is the same John who, 60 years later, this John who hesitated at the entrance of the tomb on that day of resurrection, is now the same John as an old man who is given a look behind the veil, if you will, into this, this vision of the heavenlies in Revelation 1. This John who hesitated now sees something in clarity in this vision of the reality and power of the resurrection. Something that he didn't even experience, that he didn't see immediately on the earth. Now, as he had been young, there was that empty tomb and he froze up. Well, here now, Revelation 1, we have this vision recorded by him of the resurrected Son of Man and His glory. And after describing his appearances in verses 8 through 16, John tells us that he fell at his feet as though he were dead. Then immediately Christ laid his right hand on him and he spoke words of life to him, saying, I am he who lives. I am alive forevermore. And these words there reveal to us the power of the resurrection for all who believe. For you here this morning who trust in the Lord. Power of the resurrection. And from this, we consider our theme 
But even in the face of death, there's no reason to fear. Because Jesus is the resurrection. Us who are mortal and suffer the effects of the fall in our finite, corrupt flesh, we fear death often. Or at least it's it's all around us. But there is no reason to fear. Jesus is the resurrection. We'll consider this in three points this morning then, which you'll see there in your bulletin. The first, that the Son of God is the first and last. And second, that the Son of Man is alive forevermore. The third reason not to fear death is that Christ has the keys. We'll go ahead and repeat those as we go along. But to begin, let's consider how the Son of God is the first and last. Now, John has a, a pretty good resume, if you will. Um, you know, he followed Jesus Christ in Jesus' earthly ministry. He learned directly from him. Hey, John, if you recall, was an apostle. And he was a pastor of the churches in Ephesus. Now, John wrote a gospel account. A, a beautiful gospel. And he wrote letters to, uh, to the churches. So John, just to sum that up, has really good theology. And he knows Jesus is God. Yet when he has the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, the only thing that he could do is collapse on the ground like a corpse. Why do you think that was his response? Was he maybe surprised with what he's seen? I mean, it's a pretty shocking description of the Son of Man given there in Revelation 1. Some commentators say that that was the reason why, that he saw this striking image of Jesus and he was shocked. Verse 12, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash was around his chest. He had the head of his hairs as white, white wool, white like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, polished and refined as if having gone through a furnace. And his voice was like the roaring of many waters, like Niagara Falls. And in his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, that's definitely a shocking picture. But that's not what made him fall down. It was fear. It was terror. Because you see, John knew his Old Testament. He knew exactly what he was looking at. If you were to look in Daniel 7, there the prophet, we are told, sees one who is like the Son of Man, who approaches the Ancient of Days. And that Ancient of Days is God. Then in Daniel 7, God gives this Son of Man dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom, we're told. He gives dominion and glory and the everlasting kingdom to the Son of Man. So this title, uh, Son of Man, if we were to look through the Gospels, is the name that Jesus used the most for himself. It was his favorite title. So there's, there's no mystery about the identity of this man in Daniel. In fact, this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus suffered and died on the cross and when he rose from the grave and when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And that's when God gave him the kingdom. 
But in Daniel 7, and as well as Daniel 10, we're also given an important description of the Ancient of Days. In nearly every single detail in Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days matches what John sees here in Revelation 1. In Daniel 7 and 10, you have the robe and the gold sash. You have eyes of fire. You have bronze feet. You have the great voice. You have the face, the countenance that had the brilliance of the sun. And then you have the symbol of divinity, the white hair. The same as in Revelation 1. John tells us this the symbol of divinity in verse 13. This is the appearance of the Son of Man in John's revelation. What we're seeing here is that He is the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is the Eternal God. We want to keep in mind that by the time John received this vision, you know, the Word had been made flesh. God with us. He dwelt among us. So what we have here is the Son of Man is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So John sees his master that he walked with, Jesus Christ, in this vision of glory. And John falls as though dead in the presence of the one who not only walked with him, but also who has created and sustained all things as the Son of God. John sees his master's glory in these symbols. And he's stricken with sheer terror at the sight of the Son of Man who has received all dominion and authority, who has received the honor from the Father to rule and judge all. This is he who has eyes of fire, who pierced the heart of man, who sees and knows all the thoughts of our minds. All the actions of our hands and the desires of our hearts. He who from there is no hiding. This is the God whose furnace-like feet crush his enemies and consume them in the fire of his wrath. His voice roars like a thunderstorm sweeping over open plains. We recall that in our reading of the law this morning how The Hebrews at the base of Sinai, they saw the cloud descending upon the mountain. And what happened? The lightnings, the thunderings, the tremblings, and the holy smoke from the fire. And they were terrified. They trembled because they stood there experiencing a manifestation of the Lord's glory and power. They feared for their mortal souls. They feared for their lives. This is he who exhorts and corrects the churches. Who has the power to light their lampstands with the word of his mouth and with that same word to snuff out the light of the unfaithful. His gospel goes out like a double-edged sword, both to justify and to condemn. For some will hear and believe, others will hear and harden their hearts, as if they never heard in the first place, will just distrust it, continue in their rebellion. 
This is the Son of Man that John sees. And I ask you, you know, how could man stand before God and not be shaken to his core? There's plenty of things that cause us fear and terror in this life. Uh, a friend of mine shared a post. Uh, she just recently went public with um, uh, that she has uh, stage 3 uh, cancer, uh, 28 years old. Uh, she has uh, stage 3 breast cancer. She kept it very quiet. Uh, she recounts at the beginning of it that in this, this media post, that when, you know, she, she found the lump, she goes to the doctor, and then when she heard the doctor give the diagnosis, cancer, she felt her heart sink. I've heard from others and from family members, when you hear that it's cancer, something of the, the terror, the awareness of your mortality that rises up, a fear, or just that, that something happens in you. You feel it in your core. Perhaps by way of another analogy, this is the sort of fear or terror for your life that you would feel if you were jumped in an alley by men armed with knives. Or maybe if you were out hunting and a bear started charging right at you. Maybe if you weren't even hunting. If you were out on the streets in downtown Pella and a bear is running at you, how do you think you would feel? You would run, find a closest building to jump up at. You would flee. So why not with the Son of God? When you read the, this description here in Revelation 1, why not this terror that John felt? Sure, John has a sight of it, a vision. We're hearing it, though. That is the reality and truth. This God who is an all-consuming fire. The only reaction when something of the Lord's glory was revealed to prophets like, say, Isaiah or Ezekiel, when just a glimpse of that in a vision, in symbols, was experienced by these prophets, by these men, the only thing they could do was fall down as if dead. Even the centurions who guarded uh, the entrance to Christ's tomb, we are told in, uh, in Matthew, even they, when just the angel, just the messenger of God appeared at the entrance of the tomb and the earth shook, they trembled and fell down as if dead. And that's just God's messenger who floats, who, who, who are there at the glory of the Lord. So why not us who hear the word proclaimed before us today? Why do we not fear the Son of God? Verse 17. This is why. Jesus speaks. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Do not be afraid. That's a command. Do not be afraid. And he gives us that reason. I am the first and the last. Because before there was an earth or any life on it, first there was the eternal triune God. And Paul reminds us in Colossians 1 that the Son is the image of the invisible God. 
And while John's vision is terrifying to the weak, finite state of mankind, to the corrupt nature of mankind, at the same time, it's also a glorious image, isn't it? Because again, Paul, here we have the image of this vision that Christ is the head of the body, the church. This is your head who lights your lampstand. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, says Paul. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, that he might make peace by the blood of his cross. And that is why we do not fear The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this Son of Man. At the same time, this Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. He is God. And by the blood of His cross, you're made at peace. O day of rest and gladness, you're at peace. So when you read John's image of the Ancient of Days here, in its shocking detail, in sometimes maybe even terrifying picture, when you read that, do you also see Christ in it? Do you hear the Word made flesh saying, Fear not! Do you believe that He has made peace with you personally by the blood of the cross? With that word, fear not, we remember that this Word was in the beginning with God as God. And this Word will also call His people before Him on the last day and say, Fear not. Now, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given a a second reason then to fear not in this next point. The Son of Man is alive forevermore. So John had fallen on his face but Jesus reaches down and he touches him with his right hand. And we've actually seen this uh, before in the Gospels. Um, at the Transfiguration, you recall that Jesus Christ goes up to the mountain and something of his glory appears briefly when Elijah and Moses appear at his, at his side. So at that Transfiguration uh, were Peter, James, and John. And they caught a glimpse of Christ's glory, and what do you think they did? They fell down on the ground in fear. But then Jesus comes up to them, and He touches them, and He says, Get up. Do not be afraid. This is what He does here for John once more in this vision. And in verse uh, 16, We also have an interesting symbol. Uh, It says that in his hand were held seven stars. And we're told at the end of this chapter that, uh, in verse 20, that the mystery of the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, It is the messengers of the seven churches. And this is actually possibly the the preachers of the seven churches rather than the angelic beings. But these... This is, uh, at the same time, the, the stars are a symbol for uh, power in the universe. It's a symbol for authority. 
And that's emphasized by Christ's use of his right hand. That hand is a symbol for authority. So with this authoritative hand, this ministering hand even, if you will, Christ places it on John, who fell as if he were dead. And John feels the life return to him as if his strength were restored. He is touched by the power of the resurrection. And he remembers who the Ancient of Days is. Then the Lord says in verse 18, I am the one who lives. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Truly. John was there at the crucifixion. John saw Jesus die on the cross. We said earlier that he hesitated at the entrance of the tomb. But he did eventually follow Peter in. And when he saw the burial linens laying there, it dawned on him. The things that Jesus had been teaching in his time on earth clicked. He's resurrected. Jesus resurrected and he believed, we are told. At that moment. And later on that day, he saw Jesus appear in the room where the disciples were meeting. And the others, the other disciples were then taught by Jesus for 40 days. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. All this, John has been preaching for 60 years. He's been preaching about the resurrection. But when the Son of Man says the words of verse 18... Something more substantial than the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection is being proclaimed to us. In verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is stating the power of the resurrection himself. We've just spoken about how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the first and the last. He is the eternal God who made all things and sustains them. We're told the resurrection power is this eternal God. It's who he is. It's a title. I am the one who lives. It's not just a fact. It's a name. We're getting this reminder here from some familiar words that the Lord once spoke to Moses. And he said, I am who I am. So look again at the name of I am in verse 18, if you will. What does it say? What is the name of I am? I am he who lives. Or another way to say that, I am the living one. This is what he also proclaimed to Martha when he went to raise Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection. I am the life. But truly, the Son of Man died on the cross and lay in the grave for three days, but we know death could not hold him. He says here, I am alive forevermore. And this isn't the same thing as saying, uh, as him telling John, I will live forever, as if life was something added to him, as if something, as if life was granted to him. He wasn't granted resurrection. He is the resurrection. 
I am alive forevermore. And the Greek here is a bit more pointed. Um, and literally, it's a, it's a huge underline to everything that's come before in this chapter. He says, I am living even from age to age. Unto the ages of ages. And this should remind us of Paul's words in Timothy when he speaks of him as the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. What we're emphasizing here, congregation, is that God alone truly possesses immortality all by himself. The human soul is not properly immortal. It continues to exist just because God grants it. Or another way to say that, we have life. But He is life. We always want to keep this in mind. Life is a gift from God to us. All the things that we see around us. Your very life is a testament to God and His goodness and His mercy to creation. A man can put his hope in idols of these things that pass away. These things that are mere creatures themselves, creations. We can trust in the work and creations of our own hands. We can think of our success in business. We can think of our our, our careers, our family's appearance. We can have all sorts of pious ways to evaluate our success and put our trust in them. But no God of stone, no God of money, no God of sex or entertainment, not even the government or political party, no science nor anything of this world is going to bring us comfort in life and in death. Eternal comfort. Peace with God. We see the effects of the corrupt, fallen world all around us constantly, especially these days in the media. It gets disheartening. We know the effects of sin and misery on our lives daily as our bodies age, as we go through the daily grind of work, as we're faced with sickness and disease, financial issues, whatever it is. But we're told here, the gospel if we recall from Paul, uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's an everlasting power. Because our God is everlasting. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the very content of the gospel. He is salvation. And He is a faithful witness. He testifies to to us. And just one mere manner of proof, just a small bit of proof, is that he plainly tells us these things in his own words, even today, even before you now, as we read the words of Scripture, when he says, I am the living one and I have the keys of death and Hades. So is this Son of Man also the Son of God? Do you believe in Him and the things that He says? Do you believe this is true? And that He is giving you a faithful witness in the Word, even at present, 
the power of the gospel to believe for your salvation. Because he has spoke these things, we have no reason to fear the passing away of life. We have no reason to fear the the, the oncoming uh, great equalizer, if you will, uh, death. And we want to turn to our final point to emphasize this just a bit further. Our third point, that Christ has the keys. Now, beloved in Christ, uh, death is an unnatural thing. It's unnatural. Uh, the thing is that the world has definitely normalized it. We, we can't help but normalize it. We see it around us all the time. And we'll all experience it. But we want to keep in mind that death is not from God. It was not intended for the created order. It is a result of sin. And if it is sin, it has its root in evil. Now... With the introduction of death, something devastating had occurred. And we're going back to the garden here in this way. Hey, body and soul are meant to be united. Then death has introduced a separation. We recall the words of the Lord in the garden to Adam. Uh, in the day in which they had ate of the fruit, that they should surely die. Okay. And what, what that entails now is that, as I said, death has brought separation. And we, we could say that in three ways, three sorts of separations. First, there's a separation of the soul from the flesh, from the body itself. And second, there's a separation of the parts of the body, of our, our various bodily members. Okay, we, we, we physically break down and return to dust. The separation of the parts of the body, the material. It's a separation of the soul from the flesh, separation of parts of the body, and third, a separation from our right relationship with God, our right relationship with one another, and a right relationship with the world uh, around us of how things are supposed to work. Those three separations come from death. Now, on the cross, Jesus, we recall, drank the bowl of the Father's wrath, becoming each and every sin that his people committed. Now, he cried out on that cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turned his back on his humanity. And we then were told that Jesus gave up the ghost. His human spirit yielded went to the Father in heaven. So Jesus experienced the separation from the Father for a moment. Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he experienced the separation of his human spirit from his body when it went to be with the Father. But in the fulfillment of prophecy, he didn't experience one interesting uh, separation, the separation of the parts of the body. And this was in fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, he didn't experience decay. His body part, his body did not return to dust. And it was not abandoned in the grave. And so this tells us also that his divinity never separated from him. His divinity never left him. He was never abandoned by God. 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, raised him up from that grave. And that's, that's monumental. This is the same basis of which we'll be resurrected on the last day and our bodies glorified. Our bodies remade into something fitting for everlasting life in the presence of the Lord. Now, with Christ's death, Satan thought he had won. But he had suddenly found himself crushed under the foot of Christ and bound in chains. His power was restricted. And when he emerged from the tomb, Jesus, that is, uh, in his glory, he held two symbols of his victory over the serpent. The key of Hades and the key to death. And with this, the second Adam officially received his crown, if you will, his, his, his authority to reign over creation as the righteous judge with these two keys. And when Jesus returns to execute that judgment, he'll put the key of death into its door and he'll lock it away forever. Then he'll take the key of the grave and he'll fling wide every tomb. And the dust and the bones of his saints will take on a glorious body. So we get a a remarkable reversal, if you want to put it that way. The separation of our parts will be reversed, rejoined and made new. What was dust will be regathered and reconciled, no longer separate. And then our body, that resurrected body, will meet with our souls, that separation of body and soul is reversed. They will reunite, never to be divided again. And this is all because Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation, a reversal of separation from the Father. He has reconciled us with the Father, and He has given us His own life-giving Spirit, the Spirit of regeneration. The Spirit who sanctifies us and prepares us even now for eternal glory. If you believe in Him and trust Him with your whole heart, this is your promise. The promise of eternal glory. No more separation. No more division. Renewed creation in right order. And He has guaranteed it as the firstborn of the dead. This is why Jesus Christ says, Fear not, I am is the living one. You recall his words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, even at this very moment, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you live today? Do you hear what Christ is saying in this? Do not be afraid. I am he who lives. Do you hear the voice of your Savior? Who is reconciling you with all things? Who has reconciled you with the Father? Our Savior told us that as the Father has life in Himself, that He is the living one, so He has granted the Son 
to also have life in himself. He has given him the authority and power of the resurrection because he is the Son of Man and he is the Son of God. And he holds those keys. Death is an unnatural thing. It can be, even as a Christian, difficult to dwell on it. We don't like to dwell on death. Uh, it's morbid. And sometimes it can be fearful, no matter what age you are. It, 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 it's this, this idea of, I don't know how to say it, a new experience perhaps. We go somewhere that we've never been before to live in a way that we're unfamiliar with. So death can be frightening. We think about the eternal life and the life to come with Christ. Death is an odd thing and we must all face it. I cannot tell you what it's like or the experience of, have, of dying and going to the Lord, but I can tell you one sure thing that we want to hold on to. We don't know what it's like, but we know someone who has crossed over that threshold of death and who is there and who is alive forevermore. And it's in Him that you have life and peace. May that be your peace and joy, for He stores it up for you in heaven. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot pass away. But it is for you by the power of the resurrection, the power of Christ Himself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. O eternal God, we uh, we thank you for the gift of life uh, and life itself. And not only of the resurrection life, but of Christ himself. Lord, as our reward. Lord, as the source of life, as the giver of life, as the sustainer of life. Lord, thank you that Christ is all in all. We ask that you impress these things upon our hearts and bring us peace uh, in no matter what circumstances that we may find ourselves in or as we come into contact with those in the world who do not have this hope, this hope of glory, this hope of life eternal and peace by the blood of the cross. Lord, may we be faithful witnesses even as we go out this afternoon, Lord, uh, by your mercy. Lord, we pray these things not for our sake, but for Christ's sake, in whose name we do pray. Amen.